0: This is Bible Society's She Too podcast. I'm Rosie Dawson, a religion journalist and theologian, and in this series I'm talking with women scholars about some of the most difficult passages in the Bible, passages which tell of the abuse, humiliation and rape of women. Most of these stories aren't the staple of church Bible study groups, although in southern Africa women who have been subjected to sexual violence have been critically reading these texts for years. My contributors don't always take the same academic approach. They also come from a range of faith and non-faith backgrounds. Bible Society isn't aligned to any single denomination and doesn't necessarily endorse every position taken here. But these podcasts are offered to help listeners engage with themes in parts of the Bible that are too important to ignore. For our first story, I was joined by Dr Katie Edwards, Deputy Director of Sheffield University's Institute for Interdisciplinary Biblical Studies. She began by telling me about her personal
1: and scholarly approach to the Bible. I'm not from a religious background, so I didn't have any exposure to the Bible early on. Um, so I I didn't re- and I didn't really go to church or anything like that. So what I knew about the Bible really was extremely limited until I got to university to do English literature, and accidentally sat in on a, a lecture on biblical studies. And it blew my mind. I absolutely loved it and I changed that day. I thought it was brilliant. The critical reading of such a culturally influential text, I couldn't get enough of it and now here I am. So you're not coming to it as a Christian. No. Does the historical context matter to you? Yes, but I'm interested in how this document functions right now, today. So I'm very interested in how it works in popular culture I'm very interested in how it works in public debates, public discourse around things like, you know, marriage, questions of race, questions of class. So the historical context is 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 less of a concern to me. What isn't a concern to me at all is authorial intention. You don't mind, you don't care what the author meant to do? I, I, I care very much and I'd love to know, but I don't think we can ever find out. I think lots of questions around authorial intention actually tend to be wrapped up in what the reader's assumptions are and what what things, what kind of conclusions the reader wants to bring from the text, because we don't we don't know. Okay, well, let's come to our story. And actually,
0: it's the best known of all the stories that I'm looking at in yeah. this series, because it's part of the foundational story of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's the story about patriarch Abraham, matriarch Sarah, but actually, from our point of view, it's the story of Hagar. So tell me a little bit about
1: Hagar and who she is. So in some ways, Hagar feels like a a kind of secondary character. Hagar comes into the text because Abraham and Sarah have a significant problem. Sarah can't have children. So as a solution to that problem, she suggests to Abraham, you have sex with my slave, and through my slave, I might have kids.
0: So Abraham sleeps with her
1: slave, Mm -hmm. and Hagar becomes pregnant. Yeah. How do you read that story? Well, to me, it's one of the overlooked rape narratives. It's a classic rape narrative. I mean, you've got someone there who's enslaved. She's not able to give consent. It's rape. Now, there's lots of debate around, um, you know, rape in the Hebrew Bible, that rape as a a word doesn't exist, but also that rape as a concept doesn't exist because of context. However, because I'm reading this story right now and looking at it in terms of the issues that we're facing right now, I think we need to look at this text anew and see it and call it for, for what it is. It's it's a really difficult one, isn't it, for yeah. people because of the status that Abraham and Sarah mm-hmm. have yeah. in the scriptures. Yeah, but that makes it all the more important and all the more influential. This text has so much to say about gender, about patriarchy, about how women respond or are complicit within patriarchy. I just think this is not a text that we can afford to overlook. We'll come back to some of that. So the next part of the story is
0: that Hagar's pregnant and that gives a one over Sarah, who isn't. And so Sarah says Hagar's getting a bit uppity mm. and blames Abraham. Mm-hmm. Abraham says, well, do what you want. So Sarah mistreats Hagar to the point at which Hagar decides she has to run away.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That needs a bit of thinking about, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, like, poor Hagar. You know, we've got this, this woman who's enslaved. She's just been given to her master, whatever. And where's she going to go? What maintenance has she got? You know, we, we, you know, it's very spare text, it's very sparse, not many words. We don't, really, we don't really have much description. But what we do know is she must have been treated horrendously because you've got somebody who's got the minimal choice, minimum agency, who's chosen to run away. She's running into the desert
0: and the angel of the Lord comes mm-hmm. and does two things calls Hagar by name yeah which no one else has done yeah and tells her to go back to Sarah and submit to her yeah with the promise that God will give her numerous yeah. descendants
1: that's a confusing picture of God that we're getting there oh that's a tricky picture of God isn't it because on the one hand yes you're right God does use Hagar's name there's a recognition of the very difficult circumstances that she's in but at the same time You've also got a God who's suggesting that a slave who's been horrendously treated returns to the abusers. So there's a lot to challenge in the text, but also the text has room for that challenge. It, you know, in giving this, this kind of ambivalent portrayal of God here, it is allowing us to do that. I mean, Hagar's response
0: is that she names God. Yeah. And she's, isn't she the only person in the Hebrew Bible to do that? So she says, you are the God who sees yep. me. So yep. she doesn't just get to name God. I mean, she's mm-hmm. sort of shouting, isn't she? She's saying, yeah. no one's seen me, but yeah. you've seen me. Yeah. So that's that's a very powerful thing that she's saying there. I was invisible. You have seen me.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it is very powerful.
0: And I'm wondering whether the narrator intended Mhm to show hagar in that very powerful light you know we thought Mm. she was a nobody but just watch because she Mm. gets to name god and she is seen by god Mm
1: -hmm. i think that's there i think you're dead right but is she fully seen because if someone's saying yeah you've been through a really difficult time now go back that's awkward still (laughs)
0: Okay, so the next bit of the story is that Hagar returns to Sarah, gives birth to Ishmael. Mm -hmm. And then some years later, Isaac's born, and Sarah can't deal with the fact that Ishmael threatens his inheritance, and she tells Abraham to get rid of her. And God's role here is to tell Abraham
1: to listen to Sarah. So just pick up the story and tell me what happens next. This bit of the story actually is, is very well known from art. Um, in art, it looks like Abraham and Ishmael have a very close relationship. Very often, they're embracing. Sometimes Abraham looks like he's crying. Abraham doesn't want to send them out in the desert. And then we have Sarah, who's kind of the villain of the piece in the background, looking very stern with a you know finger pointing outwards. But Hagar then is out in the desert with a child. Abraham's given some survival supplies. Obviously, not that much because they then run out. And Hagar is obviously desperate. Um, she recognises that a child is about to die. Um, she can't bear to look. So she puts him quite a way away. It says the distance of a bow shot. So there's a significant distance. And she does speak. She says, let me not look upon the death of, it, of the child. But then Ishmael lifts his voice and weeps. At that point, God hears the voice of the lad. So this is a really interesting bit in the text because Hagar spoken. She and God seem to have something of a special relationship. They're on, I mean, they're on first name terms. But now it's the child that God listens to. The angel of God comes back, calls her Hagar. And and the NRSV version has got, what troubles you, Hagar? Which is, might be a little bit annoying if you're in that situation, because you'd be like, what do you think my problem is? Have a guess. It says, fear not, God has heard the voice of the lad. So very specific you know, don't worry, lift up the lad and hold him fast with your hand for I'll make him a great nation. So we've got a promise there to Hagar about Ishmael. And then we find that, you know, God provides, so he's filled the skin with water. She's able to give Ishmael a drink. So the, the survival rations have been topped up by God. And then we see that God is with um, Ishmael. He lives in the you know wilderness, he grows up and God's with him. What's happened to Hagar? she's dropped out, she dropped from the text and She's she's arranging a marriage for her son, isn't she? Well, where is she in terms of her social status now? Where is she in terms of um, the power that people have over her now? So we don't have the same response to Hagar This might be the, the place that you would hear God was with Hagar and Ishmael or you might hear um, that Hagar also was able to Flourish under God's power, but actually, we're we're missing at the end of this story anything that might make somebody who's reading for Hagar feel comforted, even a little. So it's it's a sad story. It happened a really long time ago. What's the value for us now in reading it? Well, I think there's huge value in reading it now, not least because this story is used in sermons, it's used in um, Sunday school classes, um, you know, this, this is a text that isn't really recognised for being anything to do with sexual violence. And I think that in itself has to be a reason for us to look at it with with new eyes. Why have we overlooked this? Well, we've overlooked it because it's telling us something about the people we overlook now. Yes, this is a very old text, But it's still showing us that there are very, very similar patterns in our responses to the sexual assault and abuse of particular groups and communities where we don't recognise them. And for me, I think that's why this is really important. Katie
0: Edwards, thank you very much.